This morning's sermon forms the finale to what has been a kind of three-part mini-series on the church's response to homosexuality, and not to homosexuality only, but to the entire degeneration and depravity which we see in the pagan and godless culture which surrounds us, a culture which Paul describes in Romans 1, 18 through 32. In the first part, the sermon entitled Homosexuality in the Church, we explored what should be the church's response to the current crisis created by the aggressive normalization of homosexuality in our culture. And we established that the church must adopt a posture of compassionate conviction, courageously standing upon the truth regarding biblical marriage and sexuality, and yet always addressing the issue with compassion and humility, knowing that we too are broken sinners in need of the grace of Christ. In the second part, hypocrisy in the church, last week we followed Paul's argument out of Romans 1 and into Romans 2, 1 through 5, where Paul indicts externally religious and outwardly moral Jews on the same charges as those which he indicted the Gentiles upon. Even though they did not bow, for the most part, before physical idols, the Jews were guilty of a form of idolatry in that they constructed a false and formal religion based upon external actions which were divorced from inward affections. Even though they, for the most part, did not engage in actual immorality or actual homosexuality, yet they violated God's marital design through their unlawful practice of divorce and their ungodly, unhappy marriages. True religion, we found, the true worship of the one true God demands not only right actions, but right actions which flow out of right affections. God, the impartial judge who sees not only our outward deeds but our inward desires, will judge the religious hypocrite more strictly than he judges, say, the pagan homosexual. Last week's message called the church to a posture of humility and of heartfelt repentance that we might not walk in self-righteous, judgmental moralism, but rather in true evangelical faith. Today, we come to the third part of this series within a series, and I entitled it Holiness and the Church, and it forms a necessary addendum to last week's message warning us against hypocrisy. Throughout the history of the church, there have always been those who have understood the import of last week's message about self-righteousness and a hypocritical spirit. There have always been those who have grasped the point to which Paul is driving throughout this section of Romans, the conclusion of which he will state in Romans 3.20 that by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And in 3.23, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There have always been those who have really gotten that truth. That truth has gripped their hearts and it has defined their theology and their entire way of life. 
Self-righteousness has been driven far from their hearts and they glory in the free justification which is theirs through faith in Christ. But they fail to go further. The problem is not that such proponents of free grace overemphasize the grace of God. I don't even think it's possible to overemphasize grace. Rather, the problem is that they do not emphasize grace enough and they do not apply it widely enough. They've limited the purview and the application of God's grace to his granting of pardon for their sins. But pardon for sin is only half the gospel. Jesus did not die and rise again that we might only be pardoned for the sins which we have committed. The gospel is not simply that God justifies sinners freely by his grace. It is also that he sanctifies sinners by that same gracious power through the Holy Spirit. Jesus did not only come to make men forgiven. He came to make men holy. He came to make men new. That's the goal of the gospel. As Paul stated back in Romans 1.5 where he said that through Jesus Christ he had been granted grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among the nations for the sake of the name. The goal of the gospel, in other words, is not just faith, it's the obedience of faith. The goal of the gospel is not just pardon for sins, it is also power over sins. The goal of the gospel is not just to create a community of forgiven sinners, it's to create a church of holy saints. Last week's message was necessary in order that we would not mistake true evangelical holiness for the shadowy substitute of hypocritical, outward, self-righteous moralism. This week's message is necessary in order that we would not terminate upon gospel forgiveness as if Christianity consisted only in knowing myself a sinful wretch who has come to find forgiveness in Christ, as if that's all the Bible speaks of me. If the gospel you receive does not include both pardon and power, if it does not include both justification and sanctification, if it does not include both forgiveness and transformation, then it's not the gospel of Christ. This is why Romans does not end after chapter 5, but continues on to chapter 6 and 7 and 8 and beyond. Now, if we can get this through our minds and into our hearts, the letter of Romans is going to open up for us. Indeed, the whole of Scripture will take on a much clearer sense. The goal of the gospel is not faith and the forgiveness of sins. Faith and the forgiveness of sins is the means to the end. The end is holiness. The goal of the gospel is a renewed people walking in true righteousness, redounding to the glory of God. Now, I want to demonstrate this truth from a very crucial text, which is going to come later in our study of Romans. But I want to reach ahead 
grab it, bring it back here this week, and then we'll cover it again in uh, you know, five or ten years when we get to Romans 8. So, if you go to Romans 8 with me, I want to look at the first four verses. And I want to show you that Paul envisions the gospel as driving to a very specific point, and that point is righteousness. Now, we're very familiar with the first verse of chapter 8, which is the declaration of forgiveness for all who are in Christ Jesus, but trace the flow of Paul's argument through the next three verses. Read with me. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and of death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, and highlight this next phrase, in order that. In other words, everything he's just said in the first three verses was done, it was accomplished in order that something else might take place. In order that the righteousness or the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled, note this, in us, not for us, in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Let me tell you what Paul says in those four verses. What the law could not do, God has done in Jesus Christ. What does he mean? What was it that the law could not accomplish but which God has accomplished for us in Christ. Well, according to Galatians 3.21, the law could not produce righteousness. Why? Because it could not give life to those born in death, to those born dead in trespasses and sins. Galatians 3.21 says, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. God's ultimate aim, God's ultimate design in this thing we call the gospel is the righteousness of his people. That could not be accomplished through the law because the law can only produce death in sinners, not life. So God accomplished in Christ what could not be accomplished through the law. He imparted life. Back in Romans 8 then, verses 1 to 4, Paul names two great works which God has accomplished in Christ. Number one, he has removed condemnation from us by condemning our sin in the flesh of Jesus Christ. The law against our sin demanded the penalty of death and Christ paid that penalty of death in his substitutionary death upon the cross. But Paul explicitly states that the removal of our condemnation is not the end of the saving work of Christ. It's not the goal. Not only has God justified us in Christ, verse 2 says he's written upon our hearts a new law, the law of the spirit of life. God has set us free in Christ in order that the righteous requirement of the law, what's that? Well, we learn from our study of Mark that the righteous requirement of the law can be summarized as loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself. So by imparting to us the law of the spirit of life, 
God has set us free in Christ in order that that righteous requirement might be fulfilled in us, not for us, in us, not while we walk in the futility of the flesh, but while we walk in the power of the Spirit. In other words, Christ died and rose again in order to free us from condemnation and in order to free us for righteousness. God's design in sending Christ, according to Paul, was to set you free from the penalty of sin so that you would not have to die for your sins, so that you would not be condemned for your sins, so that the wrath of God would not fall upon you for your sins, and so that through the imparted Spirit, you would actually begin and increasingly love God and love other people. In other words, become righteous. To preach freedom from condemnation without freedom for righteousness is to preach half a gospel. Now, what does Romans 8 have to do with our text for this morning? The answer is everything. Because apart from this full-throated, comprehensive understanding of the gospel and of the saving purpose of Christ, we're going to misinterpret this passage. In Romans 2, 6-11, through 11, Paul affirms that every person, every one of us, every one of you, will be judged according to your works. Just let the weight of that sink upon your heart for a moment. Say in your minds, I will stand before God in judgment, and he will judge me according to what I have done. That ought to cause you to tremble with the weight of that declaration. Verse 6, he will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Then he switches it around. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Okay, the point is plain for everyone to see. Those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality will receive from God at the last judgment eternal life. On the other hand, those who are self-seeking and disobedient to the truth but rather obey unrighteousness, they will receive from God on the last day wrath and fury. God will grant glory and honor and peace to those who do good. He will give tribulation and distress to those who do evil, for God is exceedingly just and shows no partiality. Now, before I exegete this passage, which is before you, ask yourself in which group you find yourself. Which part of this passage describes you as a whole? Do you seek, as a rule, for glory, honor, and immortality, or... Is your life characterized by self-seeking, disobedience to the truth, and obedience to unrighteousness? Don't neuter what Paul is saying here. Don't take its teeth out. If your life is characterized by self-seeking, disobedience to the truth, and obedience to unrighteousness, you will receive from God wrath, fury, tribulation, and distress forever. 
If your life is characterized as one that seeks for glory, honor, and immortality, therefore doing good, you will receive from God eternal life, glory, honor, and peace. That's what Paul says. But does not this passage exist in irreconcilable tension with Paul's statement in Romans 1.17 that the righteousness of God comes through faith? And in Romans 3.21, that God's righteousness comes apart from the law through faith to everyone who believes. And in 3.28, with the triumphant declaration that we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. I mean, if we're just reading through Romans, we're probably going to ask ourselves, well, which is it? Are we justified by faith or are we judged according to our works? Well, many Protestants recognizing this tension, will interpret Romans 2, 6 through 11 in a kind of hypothetical sense. It goes like this. They'll read this passage and they'll say, well, God would give eternal life to any who by patience and well-doing seek for glory, honor, and immortality were there actually anyone who does so. But there aren't. So God must give eternal life in another way, namely through faith in Christ. That's a hypothetical way to take Romans 2, 6 through 11. God would give glory and honor and peace to anyone who did good, were that actually possible. But as Paul says in Romans 3, 12, there's no one who does good, not even one. So it's not possible, so God must give glory and honor and peace in some other way, namely through faith in Christ. In other words, many Protestants believing in justification by faith alone interpret this passage to be just a bare statement of the law. Those who do good are rewarded with eternal life. Those who do evil are punished with eternal tribulation. But then they reason that since no one actually does good and since everyone actually does evil, God must save his people apart from the law by giving them the righteousness of Christ in order that they may receive, by grace, the reward of eternal life. In other words, the law presents us with two options, a reward for righteousness, a punishment for unrighteousness, but since not one of us is actually righteous, God must save us apart from the law by giving us the righteousness which we lack in Christ. Let me just say that that interpretation is true insofar as it goes. I don't disagree with anything I just said, but I'm going to suggest that Paul actually has something more in mind than what I just said. I'm going to suggest that this passage is not hypothetical at all, but actual. In other words, I'm suggesting that on the last day, On the day of judgment, there will actually be people who by patience and well-doing sought for glory, honor, and immortality and that they will actually receive eternal life. That there will actually be on the last day those who do good in the way that God defines it in verse 10. And they will actually be rewarded with eternal life and glory and honor and peace. I'm going to teach, in other words... Or I'm going to suggest that Paul is teaching that believers will be justified by faith, yet judged according to works. And that these two realities do not exist in irreconcilable tension, but rather express the one goal of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you are to be justified and set right with God, you will be justified by faith alone. And on the last day... God will judge you according to your works. I think both are true. 
and I don't think they contradict one another. Now, before we begin to study this passage, I want to make a note about its structure. It's going to help us see where we're going this morning. Those of you who are familiar with poetry, which will be like two of you, will recognize in this paragraph what's called a chiastic structure. Uh, In other words, it follows an ABC, CBA pattern. Just look at the text with me. I'm going to point this out to you because this is going to create the outline for this morning. Okay? A, God will judge everyone equitably, verse 6. B, those who do good will attain eternal life, verse 7. C, those who do evil will suffer wrath, verse 8. Then Paul switches it and he goes back in opposite order. C, there will be wrath for those who do evil. B, there will be glory for those who do good. Because A, God judges impartially. So looking from this, you'll see that there's not actually six points. There's actually three points, which Paul makes twice. So here are the three points this morning. They're on your bulletin. They're on your outline. And we're going to explore all three and then conclude by, ex- by explaining how this passage emphasizes God's just judgment according to our works and yet fits with the gospel of justification by faith apart from works. The three points are these. Number one, God will judge the world in righteousness. Number two, those who are righteous will be rewarded with eternal life. And number three, those who are unrighteous will be punished with eternal death. Let's look at that first point. In verse six, Paul makes it again in verse 11. God will judge the world in righteousness. Verse 6, he will render to each one according to his works. Verse 11, for God shows no partiality. Okay, the first verse, verse 6, establishes the truth that there is coming a day when God will judge the world and that this judgment will be in accordance with our works. This, by the way, does not only appear in Romans 2. It is a constant biblical theme. In fact, Romans 2.6 is an almost exact quotation of Proverbs 24.12, and it echoes several other Old Testament passages, the teachings of Jesus, the writings of Paul, and the writings of the rest of the New Testament. So what I want to do is I want to give you a, a flavor of the biblical teaching on the final judgment in accordance with works, f- drawing one passage from each of those four categories. So they'll be up on the screen. You don't have to worry about where these books are found. Let me just read them to you and you look as I do. Jeremiah 17:10. God says, "I the Lord search the heart and test the mind to give to every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds." So the prophetic witness is that we will be judged according to our works. Jesus, Matthew 16:27 says, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. So Jesus' witness is that there is coming a day of judgment in which we will be judged according to our works. That's not just an Old Testament theme. Paul, 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is his due for what he has done in the body, whether good or or evil. Okay? So this judgment according to works is not just one based on rewards. Finally, Revelation 20, verse 12. 
And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. So from beginning to end, the scriptures testify to us that we all, every one of us, will stand before God on the day of judgment to be judged, and from beginning to end, the scriptures testify that our just recompense on that day will be in accordance with what we have done. In other words, our deeds matter, our decisions matter, our lives matter. They matter eternally. That is the dignity which, with which God has created you. He has created you with such dignity, with such moral responsibility that you will be held accountable for what you have done. The second verse, verse 11, establishes that on the day of judgment there will be no partiality. There's going to be no favoritism. There will be no special treatment, not even for the Jews. Paul makes this plain in verses 9 and 10 that just as the Jews are the first to receive the gospel, Romans 1.16, so they will be first to be judged according to Paul's gospel. This is an important principle of divine justice. It goes like this, to whom much has been given, much will be, what? Required. Those who have been given greatest access to the light of revelation will receive the strictest judgment according to the revelation they have received. This is the reason Jesus can say to the externally religious, outwardly moral Jews of Capernaum that it's going to be more tolerable on the day of judgment for Sodom than for them. Likewise, I would add that there will be no special treatment on the day of judgment for the visible church. Just because you are a member of the church means nothing. You will receive no special treatment, no cutting to the front of the line, nothing. Peter says in 1 Peter 4.17, it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So point number one, God will judge the world in righteousness. This judgment will be according to our works. And there will be no special treatment, no exceptions, no exemptions for church members. Point number two, the righteous will receive eternal life. Paul makes this point in verses 7 and 10. Verse 7, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But glory and honor and peace, verse 10, for everyone who does good, the Jew first, and also the Greek. Question, how does Paul define righteousness? Because I'm going to give you a little hint. He does not define righteousness in the same way that he did when he was a Pharisee. That he does not define righteousness in terms of a Pharisaical morality or external adherence to the law, I think hardly needs to be proven. In almost every letter, Paul is critical of what he calls works of the law. Okay? From beginning to end, in Paul's letters, when you read works of the law, that's something bad. It refers to outward, external obedience to the law that is motivated by a self-seeking desire to establish one's own righteousness and to put God in one's debt. But just because Paul abominates self-righteousness does not mean that Paul is anti-righteousness, properly defined. 
So what is true righteousness according to Paul, which he sets in opposition to self-righteousness? Well, we got our first glimpse, if you remember back in Romans 1.5, where Paul stated that the goal of his apostolic ministry was to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of the name among all the nations. So true righteousness, what God desires from us, is not the obedience of the flesh, that would be self-righteousness, it's the obedience of faith, that is the obedience that springs from flows from, is the result of faith in Christ's promise, provision, and power. True righteousness, in other words, has a totally different source, a totally different power, and a totally different motivation than pharisaical self-righteousness. In Romans 2, we get our second glimpse of Paul's conception of true righteousness. He actually defines it for us in verse 7. He says it is patience in well-doing, literally perseverance in good works. So the righteous are marked by a persevering character. In other words, those who will receive eternal life are not those who make a momentary commitment to turn over a new leaf or to make a new start or to get rid of this sin or to take up this habit, but then after a week or a month or a year, they return right back to the thing that they swore they would never do again. That's not righteousness, according to Paul. Rather, righteousness is defined as perseverance in good works, patience in well-doing. Secondly, he says, through patience and well-doing, they're seeking for something. There's some goal that they've got in mind that determines how they live and what decisions they make. This goal he defines as, verse 7, glory, honor, and immortality. Glory does not refer to self-exaltation. The Bible doesn't speak kindly of those who glorify themselves. Rather, it refers to, as John Murray stated, It's frequently used by Paul in this epistle and elsewhere to describe the goal of the believer's expectation and points to the transformation that will be affected when believers will be conformed to the image of God's Son and reflect the glory of God. In other words, to seek for glory is to seek for God. It's to seek to be in His presence. I want to do whatever will get me into His presence, and I want to to get rid of, I want to put to death anything that prevents me from getting into His presence. That's what it means to seek for glory. Same way, to seek for honor refers to seek for that honor which only God bestows upon those who are faithful to Him in life. It's what Paul refers to later in Romans 2.28. Look down the page with me, where he says that a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from man, but from God. The righteous man says, that's what I want. I don't care what other people say about me. I don't care what accolades they heap on me. I don't care what condemnations they heap on me. What matters to me most is on the last day, God says, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what it means to seek for honor. And to seek for immortality refers to the resurrection hope of the people of God. So taken together, the picture emerges of a person who has renounced the sins of this age. In other words, they're repentant. They live with their mind set upon eternity. And they seek the praise of God rather than the praise of men. 
Surely then, defined that way, you can see how Paul's conception of righteousness is different from the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Works of the law. They're not even in the same sphere. And what do the righteous receive? Paul says it there in verse 7. Eternal life. If by patience and well-doing you seek for glory, honor, and immortality, you will receive from God eternal life. In verse 10, Paul switches the order and he works back in reverse. And he says that glory and honor and peace will be granted to everyone who does good. That these two verses are said in parallel means that doing good is the same thing as seeking for glory, honor, and immortality. And glory, honor, and peace means the same thing as eternal life. The point is that on the day of judgment, those who pursued true righteousness, not the works of the law, not the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, not a righteousness which is done in the strength of my own flesh in order to be seen by men, in order to be regarded as holy by men, but true righteousness that seeks for God's glory, God's honor, and immortality from him will receive everlasting life, glory, honor, and peace. Point number three. On the other hand, verses 8 and 9 tell us that the unrighteous will receive eternal death. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. All right, so how does Paul define unrighteousness? Well, first he says it is self-seeking. It's selfishly ambitious. Whereas the righteous man seeks glory and honor and immortality that comes from God alone, the unrighteous man seeks the glory and the praise that comes from man. Secondly, to be unrighteous is to not obey the truth, which means that he rejects the revelation of God which he has received, whether in creation, like the pagan Greeks, or in scripture, like the religious Jews. And third, he obeys unrighteousness, meaning that rather than conforming his life to the revelation of God which he has received, he obeys the unrighteous impulses of his sinful heart. The picture that emerges is of a man who is consumed with himself, a man who is a slave of his sinful nature, a man who rather than submitting his heart to the supremacy of God, desires supremacy and sovereignty for himself. And the fruit of this kind of self-ruled, sin-enslaved soul is, according to verse 9, evil. Which may take the form of the pagan perversity, which Paul outlined in Romans 1. Or it may take the form of Pharisaic religion, which Paul is dealing with in Romans 2. Both are evil. Either way, the result is wrath, fury, tribulation, and distress. Wrath and fury denotes God's reaction to the unrighteous. It speaks of a violent emotion boiling over into a passionate outburst. Tribulation and distress denotes the experience of those upon whom wrath and fury comes. And it's interesting, very, very potent words. Both tribulation and distress convey a constriction like a, like a room that's closing in on you. And the pressure's getting higher and higher and higher. That's the experience of those who receive God's wrath and fury. And it is their experience forever. How do I know that? Because it's set in parallel with eternal life. 
If those who seek for glory, honor, and immortality receive eternal life, what do you think those who are self-seeking, who obey unrighteousness and don't obey the truth receive? Temporary tribulation and distress? Eternal wrath and fury and tribulation and distress. So to summarize then, Paul states, number one, God will judge the world in righteousness. Number two, the righteous will receive from him eternal life. Number three, the unrighteous will receive from him eternal death. Is that clear enough? To this point, no self-respecting Protestant will have disagreed with me. But where some Protestants may get heartburn is from the fact that I'm suggesting that Paul's description here is a picture of what will actually happen on Judgment Day, not what would hypothetically happen were people actually able to seek for glory, honor, and immortality. On the Judgment Day, I believe there will actually be two groups, the righteous and the unrighteous. The righteous defined as those who by patience and well-doing have actually in their life sought for glory, honor, and immortality, they will receive eternal life, glory, honor, and peace. The unrighteous, those who have actually in their life been self-seeking, disobeyed the truth, and obeyed unrighteousness, will receive eternal wrath and fury, tribulation, and distress. Let's make it personal. On the day of judgment... If you haven't, through perseverance and well-doing, sought for glory, honor, and immortality, you will not enter eternal life. You will be everlastingly condemned because you will be judged according to your works. Yet, Paul says we're justified by faith alone. How can this be? Has Paul taken leave of his senses? How can Paul say in one breath that justification is by faith alone, chapter 1, 16, and 17, that we're justified by faith alone apart from works of the law, Romans 3.28, and in the next breath say that we're going to be judged according to our works. It's a good question. And so I want, to, I want to conclude by giving you three reasons why Romans 2, 6 through 11 does not contradict the gospel of justification by faith alone, but rather establishes the gospel. Three reasons, and then I'll be done. Number one, we must distinguish between justification and judgment, they are not the same thing. Justification refers to the invisible, immediate, present declaration of God that I am righteous and am accepted in His sight only on the basis of the fact that God considers Christ's righteousness as belonging to me and my unrighteousness as having been imputed to Jesus and fully punished in him on the cross. That declaration of justification happens the moment we believe and it has no reference whatsoever to a works of any kind. Is that clear? We are justified by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Justification answers the question, how can a sinner be made right with a holy God? Answer, by grace, through faith, in Christ, alone. The judgment, on the other hand, is the future, visible event in which all humanity will stand before the throne of God and give an account of their lives. This judgment, according to Paul and the rest of Scripture, will be, as we've seen, according to our works. 
on that day, God will look at our works, he'll look at our life, and he will reward us accordingly. Judgment answers the question, who will be saved on the last day? Answer, at least the one given in this text, those who by patience and well-doing sought for glory, honor, and immortality. Now, everybody look up here. There is no one who is justified by faith for whom the judgment according to works will render an unfavorable verdict. This is because, number two, the distinguishing factor between those in verses 7 and 10 and those in verses 8 and 9 is regeneration and the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. The description of the righteous in verses 7 and 10 is a description of a born-again person. A person in whose soul that Copernican revolution has taken place such that they are no longer the center of their universe. Now God has become the center of their universe and they gladly orbit around him. He has become their joy, their delight, their aim, their pursuit, their God. This, of course, is going to bring about dramatic changes in their life, isn't it? It's going to change their motivations. It's going to change what they seek. What do you think that kind of person is going to seek? Glory, honor, and immortality. They increasingly live in righteousness, God-centered, God-motivated, God-empowered holiness. Okay, that's verses 7 and 10. The description of the unrighteous in verses 8 and 9 is of an unregenerate person, a person who hasn't been born again, a person who still has themselves as the center of their universe. That's why Paul says they're self-seeking. A person whose standard of truth, of justice, of righteousness is self-determined, which of course is going to bring about disastrous consequences in their life, a life of manifest unrighteousness. Reason number three. The righteousness which will receive eternal life on the last day is a righteousness that is born of faith and empowered by the Holy Spirit, therefore is entirely of grace. It is not the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. It is not a righteousness that is of the law, that is external, that is self-focused, that is self-empowered, that is self-glorifying. True righteousness is, as we have seen, the obedience of faith. It is Godward. It is Christ-centered. It is Spirit-empowered. This is why true righteousness can never be considered a work of the law. It is a work of faith. It is a work of the Spirit. It is a work of grace. And therefore, all glory goes to whom? God and God alone. Now, we're only beginning to tap into this truth, but it's going to demand our attention all the way through Romans 6 through 8. So on the last day, on the day of judgment, God could, if he so wished, separate humanity on the basis of three separate criteria. So I want you to imagine with me, I'm almost done. I want you to imagine with me, it's judgment day, and God is going to separate all of humanity, including you, into two groups. I'm suggesting that he could do that in one of three ways. He could divide humanity into the believers and the unbelievers, therefore into the justified and the unjustified. Or he could divide humanity into those who are born of the Spirit and those who are still of the flesh, those who are alive to God and those who are dead in trespasses and sins. 
Or he could divide humanity into the righteous and the unrighteous. Those who through patience and well-doing sought for glory and honor and immortality. And those who were self-seeking who did not obey the truth but obeyed unrighteousness. However God divides humanity on the last day, watch this, the exact same people would constitute both groups. Why? Because those who are born again inevitably and always believe and are justified. And all who are born of the Spirit and are justified by faith inevitably and increasingly walk in true Spirit-wrought righteousness, or as Paul calls it, the obedience of faith. That's why there is no contradiction between affirming, gloriously affirming, that we are justified by faith alone and warning that we will be judged according to our works. No contradiction exists. The implication for the church, for this church, is that holiness matters. Your life matters. What you do matters. Killing sin matters. It matters eternally. Deeds matter. Decisions matter. Desires matter. Sin matters. Obedience matters. If you walk in true righteousness, as we've defined it this morning, you will enter eternal life. If you don't, you won't. If you walk in the obedience of faith, you will receive from God glory and honor and peace. If you're self-seeking and you don't obey the truth, which tells you to put to death sin and to walk in the Spirit, you will not receive from God glory and honor and peace. You will receive from Him wrath and fury and tribulation and distress. Righteousness is the inevitable, essential, necessary evidence of true faith. And listen to me, you will not be saved without it. Hebrews 12, 14 tells us, implores us to strive for peace with all men and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now, let's pause here. I have prayed and I hope that your reaction at this point is something akin to, Uh Uh-oh. Because this is serious business. It deals with your sin. I dare say that there shouldn't be anyone among us this morning who would sit here and say, the one who through perseverance and well-doing seeks glory and honor and immortality. Hmm, check. In other words, this passage is designed to convict you. So the question is, what do you do? Well, the application is not, well, go home, try harder, and be better. Why? Because the power for holiness does not reside within you. It doesn't reside in your flesh. It's not in you to persevere in well-doing. It's not in you to seek for glory, honor, and immortality. Where is it? It's in Christ. Jesus who gives the Spirit to those who believe. So the application of this message is not go home, try harder, be better people. That's the way the Pharisees would have interpreted this text. The interpretation rather is trust Christ. Trust him not only for the pardon of your sins, trust him for the power to overcome your sins. 
It is to trust Christ, to throw yourself upon him, upon his atoning grace, upon his gracious provision of the Spirit. If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So take this text, bow down in prayer, and ask him, and he will grant it. Trust him for new desires and new affections. Trust him for new power over temptation, new power to resist sin. Trust him to help you love the Father and to help you love your brother. Trust Jesus for righteousness. Both the righteousness that justifies us apart from the works of the law through faith in Christ and the righteousness that keeps the law through faith in Christ. And if you trust in Jesus like that, you'll persevere in well-doing. You'll seek for glory, honor, and immortality. And on the last day, you will hear from God, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of my kingdom.